Well, it's time today to get on your seminary hats. It's time to get on your seminary hats today because this is quite a passage here today, folks. This is one of the most hotly debated passages in the entire New Testament. I have read a good 10 to 12 different Bible scholars on this passage this week. One of the commentators that I read said that he and some friends were at a professional meeting in San Francisco, and they were headed out to eat. There were three of them who were headed out to eat and do some shopping. As they were walking in the city, they came across another New Testament professor who had been walking. He was well known as an author and as a speaker, and so they asked him to join them. So there were four New Testament Bible nerds walking down the streets of San Francisco. And they had this place to go, so they decided to take the trolley together. So they get on this trolley, and they begin to talk of all of the infinite things that are available for them to discuss, like the weather. They start talking about Hebrews 6, 4 to 6. On this packed trolley, businessmen and women, uh, tourists, People shopping. I'm just trying to get where I'm going, people. Do we have to debate Hebrews? So here they are in the middle of this trolley. And they're discussing whether a true Christian can lose their salvation. Or if those described here as the fallen ones were never true Christians in the first place. This is what he says. He says the scene was somewhat comical. Here are four New Testament professors arguing over the intricacies of Greek grammar and word meanings, surrounded by a crowd silently staring straight ahead with blank faces. Probably trying to stay out of the mix. But they were forced to listen to our theological wrangling, he says. He says this, the picture here, it illustrates that scholars even are anything but of uniform opinion when it comes to these warning passages in Hebrews. And he says many lay people do not share our enthusiasm for debate. So we're going to dive into the deep end today, friends. For just a few minutes, I want to provide some overview of this passage in basic terms and three of the most basic ways to interpret these verses. And then after that, we can move on to what the passage is saying to us as individuals and as a church, because I do think there are some important lessons for us to learn today. I hope your Bibles are open because you're going to need to follow closely on this one. We're focusing on three verses, four, five, and six. I'm going to reread this whole passage for you in just a second so that we can hear the context again of these verses. But we're going to be focusing on four, five, and six for just a moment. And here, if you're taking notes, here is the main question involved in these verses. I want to be clear about what the main issue is. In verse four where it says those who have once been enlightened, who then later fall away, they're described as people who are impossible to restore again to repentance. In verse 6, it describes them that way. The question is this. (laughs) Who exactly 
is Hebrews 4 to 6 talking about? Let me read the passage again. Follow along if you would, please. This is 6, 4 through 12, the whole way here. Um, Actually, let's just go 4 through 8 for now. Verse 4, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Verse 7, for land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. Verse 8, but if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. There are three basic positions and ways to interpret this passage. We'll fill those in on your blanks here as we go along. I will not tell you, by the way, I am not going to stand here and tell you how to think about this. Sorry to disappoint you. You're not going to hear what Scott's 17 ways to interpret Hebrews 6, 4 to 6 are going to be. I'm going to provide you with some basic interpretations so you can do some more digging on your own or you can become truly confused on your own later on. I came across in this very passage six to seven, depending on how you categorize it, different ways to interpret this passage. We're just going to categorize them into three. Please keep in mind, I cannot possibly do justice to all of these explanations in 25 minutes. And, as I'll talk about afterwards, I don't think it's the most productive use of our time here. Here are the three basic ways. Number one, the hypothetical view. The hypothetical view of this question of who is really being talked about here in four, uh, I'm sorry, six, four to six. One view, this view, the hypothetical view, says it refers to a hypothetical situation that has never existed and therefore is a warning against a sin that is impossible to commit for believers, according to this view. The situation is presented by the writer as a warning to keep believers from apostasy, from rejecting Christ, from false doctrines. It's sort of just a, what if this happened? That's the hypothetical view. The second one is the actual view. That's the second blank there, the actual view. This interpretation is that those who who fall away are actual bona fide Christians. Those who hold this view believe that God supplies grace to those who are trusting him, but the ultimate perseverance of any believer depends on the cooperation of that believer's own free will. A lot of nerdy theological language there, but I just wanted to cover the basics. This view says, whatever the state of this Christian, any and every Christian is capable of apostasy and of turning away. Third view, just briefly, is the view that that those people are just apparently saved, apparently believers. 
This view holds that those who fall away are not true believers, but they only appear so. They are people who received a thorough exposure to the gospel. For example, the Jewish believers of the preceding verses who were taught the ABCs, the basic principles. These people have made a public profession of faith and have been received into the fellowship of God's people. But at a later point, they abandoned their profession of faith, even becoming opponents of Christ. There it is. That was the basics. A lot of interpreters end up trying to say something in between a couple of these and, and use phrases like, well, you can't lose your salvation, but you can leave it. That's what a lot of uh, interpreters kind of try to say. The Bible nerds uh, try to come, come somewhere around that on the issue sometimes. Here's the point that I want to make today. On all sides of this issue are people who are thoroughly, adamantly convinced, who believe with their whole heart that this kind of issue is a really big deal. Where you come down on this issue for some people is heaven or hell for them. And they will vociferously and uncompromisingly defend their position and write you off, if you don't feel like they do, as immature or even worse. Now, think about that for a second. Doesn't that tell us something important? Doesn't that provide us with some perspective? I want to uh, provide you with what I prayerfully believe is a little perspective on these kinds of issues. We are going somewhere. Follow me on this. Because it is extremely important for how we operate as the body of Christ. If this issue of saved once and always, or you can backslide, if this issue of whether someone can lose their salvation were meant to be crystal clear as an important point of basic Christian doctrine, don't you think that God's word would have made it crystal clear? I want to warn against caring too much about what exactly you believe about who Hebrews is talking about in our passage. I want to warn against putting too much stock in whether you or I or our church or that church or the Baptists or the Presbyterians, I want to put no stock in what anybody else believes or what you believe or what I believe when the issue is not of crystal clear, I die for this kind of doctrine. There are numerous churches in our own area who would instantly say that I am a heretic for telling you that you could believe either one of those and still be safe. What does seem certain in this passage is that these verses in 4 to 6 fit those who have taken initial steps in associating with the Christian community. It says, those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the word of God. Those people 
have taken initial important steps in who it is that they are becoming as believers. Now, whether this means that they've been changed by God's power into new creatures, as 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, or in some way they have demonstrated on the outside that they have demonstrated behaviors associated with new life and not evidence of life change, I don't think, frankly, we know for sure. And I think anybody who tells you definitively hasn't done enough study. And I think these kinds of things, as we'll see in just a moment, are far more important for us than they may seem at first. These may seem like theological details of doctrine that don't have anything to do with me, how I'm going to walk out those doors. Let me tell you exactly how it does. There are two main ways. It means that we as believers are called to, number one, fight for things about which we are certain. That's the next blank there in the, path, in the uh, sermon outline. We are meant, as believers, we are called to fight for things about which we are indeed certain. We do know for sure that Hebrews is saying this. Make sure this isn't you. Make sure milk-drinking immaturity grows into mature development. Where the work of God shows in your life as bearing fruit. Make sure that's you. Don't be like verse 8, where it bears thorns and thistles. Make sure you're verse 7, where your life is a place where the growth of God can be cultivated in your heart and in your mind and in your life. Where you're producing a crop. Fight for things about which we are certain. We are certain, in general terms, that we believe at First Christian Church the central things that Orthodox believers have come to believe over many, many centuries. There are things about which we can be certain. People have died over the issues of making sure that these kinds of things are certain. That Jesus is the only begotten Son of God who died for our sins and rose from the dead. Certain. That the Bible is the inspired word of God, that it's a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. Certain. That every person has worth as a creature, as a creation of God, but that all have sinned and fallen short of that glory. We can be certain about that. We can be certain that the forgiveness of sins and the promise of eternal life are available to all who trust Christ as Savior and as Lord. Certain. We can be certain that those accepting Christ should repent of their sin, confess their faith, be baptized into him. Of that we can be certain. And we can be certain that the church is the body of Christ here on earth, empowered by the Holy Spirit, existing for the purpose of evangelizing the lost and edifying the saved. We can also be certain that Jesus will one day return and reign forever as King of kings and Lord of lords. We are certain of those things. So let's keep main things, main things. We're certain in our passage here in Hebrews that there is a stern, a stern warning to make sure that verses 4 through 6 are not talking about you. We can be certain of that. 
And yet we get distracted into thinking that certain theological persuasions or matters of doctrine matter more than living in a manner worthy of the calling we have received. Scripture says to work out your salvation with fear and with trembling, Philippians 2. It says to make your calling and your election sure, Second Peter 1. You see, the Scriptures are not given to us that we might master them as an end in itself, but in Hebrews 4.12, that it will master us. It's a book of mission and of instruction for the purpose of living fruitful lives for the sake of the glory of God and not for having all the answers. And so we want to strive to be a church of common mission about the things we know we can be certain of and not common doctrinal distraction. Let everyone else care about whether or not these people in Hebrews are saved. Let everybody else care about that. Let us fight for the things we know are so clearly taught in Scripture that we would stake our lives on those kinds of truths. As long as I'm called here in this place and to be a preacher, I will keep the main things, the main things. If you want a preacher who will defend what you think so that you can feel good about what you think, you've got the wrong guy. I care about being a people and a church of mission about the things we know are certain. People who live on purpose who work hard to fulfill God's calling that he's given us to join with him in bringing people to himself. Let everybody else fight about the unimportant things. Which leads us to number two. Fighting about unimportant things hinders the progress of the kingdom of God. Fighting about the unimportant things hinders the progress of the kingdom of God. Friends, I think it means we have to work hard at keeping the main things the main things. And the main thing is the incredible privilege we have of joining with God in his plan to redeem people to himself. Let everybody else argue. Listen closely to this, because this is an incredibly sad truth that marks church after church after church after dead church. While points of doctrine about which we cannot be certain are argued till they're red in the face and they unnecessarily become matters of division, while that's happening, we are surrounded by people... Verse 8, whose end is to be burned. While our churches murmur and bicker and argue and fight over things that are incredibly unimportant compared to the eternal status of our souls, people all around us do not know the joy of relationship with God. The main thing has no longer become the main thing for many people. 
Think, think for just a moment about how incredibly small-minded and selfish that is. Think about how God's heart breaks for the souls of lost people, and yet we sometimes are more worried about things that we've made doctrines. You want to know what the problem is in dead churches in America? It is that we have turned our personal preferences into doctrines. We have turned our personal preferences into doctrines. So while people murmur and bicker and fight, there are untold millions who do not know Jesus as Lord. So where? Where are the... Where are the believers and the churches who will stand up together and say with the united voice, instead of caring about ourselves and keeping our safe little Jesus in a neat, convenient package so that we can take him out when we need him or when it's convenient or when I'm able to, where are the churches and the believers who instead of keeping Jesus in a safe little place for us, are willing to sacrifice and have their lives wrecked for the sake of the gospel because somebody out there doesn't know the Lord. Every single one of us knows people in our families with whom we work, with whom we live next to, that know nothing about a relationship with Jesus that brings satisfaction and meaning while we're worried about whether or not I can lose my salvation. Where are the people in our pews willing to stand up and be counted among those who will undergo personal sacrifice that is marked by the sacrifice of the cross so that we can see lost people come to know Jesus? Where are the churches who will unify around a common mission to which we have been called? instead of becoming addicted to a steady diet of unimportant doctrinal points that in the end make us feel good about ourselves. These are stern warnings that Hebrews has given us. But at the end of our passage today, At the end of our passage, because we serve a risen Lord, willing to die on the cross to make sacrifice for us, because of that, verses 9 to 12, there is also great hope. He says this, though we speak in this way, that is with stern warnings, he says, yet in your case, beloved, he calls them beloved. It's the first time in the whole book where he calls them beloved. He says, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit 
the promises. Friends, let everybody else worry about things that don't matter. Let us become a people who are united by keeping the main things the main things. Do I have opinions on this passage? Of course I have opinions on this passage. Many of you have opinions on this passage. Many of you have been raised from the first time you stepped into church to have a certain kind of opinion. Let us be people who are unified around the common goal of being imitators of those who have come before us. Person after person after person after person in the great cloud of witnesses we'll get to later on in Hebrews has died for the sake of the cause of redemption of people to Christ. Let us be imitators of those kinds of people. May we become the kind of people who are willing to make the sacrifices necessary to participate in that calling. The greatest calling any of us could ever have of bringing people to know the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we desire hearts and minds that are wholeheartedly, single-mindedly focused on the things that break your heart, the things that move and motivate your Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, we repent of the ways in which in our, in our humanity, in our sin, in our small-mindedness, we have become worried about things that obscure the mission. Help us, Lord, to be clear about the reason we exist as people called to glorify you through participating with you in redemption. It's an incredible privilege we want to take seriously here, Lord, as the people of God called by your name. We are grateful for the grace and the mercy that you have demonstrated to us in the cross. And so we take hold of that with full assurance of hope that you will continue to work in us a salvation that you will bring to completion. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. One of the reasons for us today that, that I've talked in this kind of way is because we want to become the kind of place that's focused on the important parts of redeeming people to Jesus Christ. And so at, at the end of our time here, we often have a little, a little time of invitation because we want to make open and accessible to you the chance to respond. We're a place that wants to keep the main things the main things. And so we'd ask that as we stand to sing in just a moment, if you would like to place membership with us as an immersed believer in Jesus Christ and to be a part of this culture where we keep the main things the main things, then we'd like to invite you 
to come forward. And if you would like in the waters of baptism to publicly declare yourself as someone who follows Jesus as Savior and Lord, we would like to invite you as we stand and we sing.